All right, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. And in just a couple of minutes, we're going to read a few verses there. If you don't have a Bible, there's some underneath the chairs, and you'll find this morning's passage in those Bibles on page 985. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, you're free to take one of those with you. We also have some paperback ones out in the lobby that you could grab as well. Again, that that was Colossians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 2 through 6. But before we do that, I want to catch the rest of you up. See, for some of us, we're on the, the tail end of this letter. And so we know about what's come before this, everything Paul has said to the Colossians. But for a lot of you, you're just coming in today. And so you're kind of picking up the tail end of what Paul is really saying to the church. So, you're picking up the last part. So Paul, up to this point, is he, he's told the Colossians uh, just that he's been praying for them, how much he is thankful to God for the work that God has done in the Colossians in redeeming them through Christ. As he did that, he just holds up this, this picture of who Jesus is as this king who is in charge of everything and reigning over everything. And so he he really gives them this picture of how they're saved and who it is that they're saved by. And then in the second half of the letter, he begins to talk about this new life that we have in Christ. It's, It's not the old life. The old life has been stripped off us because of what Christ has done for us. And this new life has been placed on us. It's not something that we have to do. It's something that's been done for us and we live out the implications of. And then last week we saw how this new life is lived out in these these most common relationships that we have in our lives. So husbands and wives and parents and kids and, and servants and masters, or in our case, bosses. And so today we pick up at the point where Paul is just kind of wrapping things up. He's concluding the letter, and so he gives them some, some final instructions, the kind of very last things that he wants to say to them. And then next week, he'll give these personalized greetings to uh, a group of people, and that's essentially the part of the letter where it says, like, sent from my iPhone. It's the this, this signature. He's, he's signing off. He said what he wants to say, and he just gives a few more instructions to people. But today, uh, this passage... Even though it's short, even though it's small, even though these are very basic ideas, I think it has a lot to say to us about how we should live our life. And so let's, let's read this this morning, and then we'll pray. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. God, even as your word tells us that we should continue steadfastly in prayer, we come to you now. And we ask that you would use the same Holy Spirit that inspired the Apostle Paul to write down these words to help us to understand them. Help us to see in them uh, both a challenge for how we should live differently and an encouragement 
uh, to do what you've called us to do. Father, help us to be people who are hearers and doers of your word. Jesus, we thank you that we only know and understand and respond to your word because of what you've done for us. Jesus, we thank you that you died on our behalf. You paid the penalty that we were supposed to pay for our sin. You freed us from its power. You stripped off the old life and gave us a new one. Help us this morning to respond to Your Word in light of what You have done for us on the cross. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. So the very first thing we need to recognize about this passage is that Paul here is giving us commands. These aren't electives. These aren't optional statements that we can choose whether or not we want to do them. He is giving us very explicit, very clear commands about what we're supposed to do in our lives. And really, there's two main ideas for us this morning. The first one is that we should pray. We should pray steadfastly, pray continually, and then he's going to tell us some specifics about how we do that and what we pray for. And then the second thing he's going to tell us is that we should walk in wisdom or, or live in wisdom towards outsiders. And so the main point for us this morning is simply pray and, and live wisely towards others. We're going to see these things come out. So the first thing, Continue steadfastly in prayer. Another way this could be translated is to be busy in prayer. To busy ourselves with it. So if you think about your schedule and you think about all the things that you spend time on and and what it is that's taking up the most significant chunks of time, Paul here is telling us that prayer should be one of those things that we are busy with. And I know that the reality of my life And I would guess that for most of you, the reality of your life is that if you look at your schedule, prayer is not one of the things that people would say that you're busy with. But it should be. Paul tells us that it's something that we have to continue in. And now I know that whenever there's a command in Scripture, most of us, because of how we've been brought up, think about something very specific. Most of us have been brought up in in the church which says, you know, here's this list of things and you've got to do them. If you don't do them, then, then God isn't going to be happy with you. You're not going to be a good Christian. You're not going to be a good follower of Jesus. You've got to check all these boxes off and then only then, once you've done that, will He like you. And so if that's who you are and you're still kind of under that mindset, you need to get rid of it. Because that not how God sees us. If we are in Christ, if we've been redeemed by Him, then God is pleased with us already. Not because He's pleased with us, but because He's pleased with His Son. He looks at Jesus and He says, well done and faithful servant. And He looks at us and says, you get credit for what He's done. And so don't think that if you go out this week and you fill up your time with prayer that God is going to like you better. Because He won't. He likes Jesus, not you. 
He likes you because He likes Jesus and because you're in Him. Now the flip side of that is that because we know that, because we have that knowledge, when we see commands in Scripture, our tendency is to kind of shrug them off and go to the other extreme and think, you know, I, I, I don't want to be a legalist. I don't want to think that if I do these things then God will like me or God will delight in me more because of it. And so I don't want to just pursue duty. I want to delight in God. I want to delight in His commands. I want to do them because I desire to, not because I have to. And that's a good thing. But sometimes we emphasize those distinctions so much that we just don't do the commands. And the really interesting thing here about what Paul says to us is this word that is to be busy in something, it can also mean to be devoted to something. It's the same word. It means the same thing. Devotion and busyness. When we think of busyness, we think of something negative, something that takes up our time that we don't want it to. But devotion is a great thing, right? If I'm devoted to my wife, I spend time with her. That's something I should do as a Christian man. If I don't, I'm messing up. But if I busy myself in spending time with my wife, that sounds like it's something that I don't enjoy. But the reality is that we busy ourselves with the things that we're devoted to. Whatever we like, whatever we enjoy, that's what we spend time on. Now some of you are thinking, I spend 40 hours a week at work. I don't enjoy work. If you work for HLG, that's probably true. I'm just kidding. Maybe it is true for you. Maybe it's not. But when you think about all the time you spend for your job, you don't spend that time necessarily just because you love what you do. It's not because you're devoted to your job, it's because you're devoted to what your job does. Your job provides for your family. Gives you food, a place to live, clothes to wear. Those are things that are positive benefits of us spending 40 hours a week at work. And so we don't work, we don't busy ourselves with work because we're devoted to our boss or our job or the company we work for. We busy ourselves with work because we're devoted to our families and our calling as people who are supposed to provide for themselves. So even though they seem like they're different things and they're distinct, it's the same, it's the, it's the same idea. We're doing it because of what it provides for us. And so when you think about prayer, to bring it back to what Paul is talking about here, don't think that I can only pray if I have this huge desire to. Don't think that if, if, you, if you're doing it just because of the command that it's, it's going to be dishonoring to God. See, because the reality is when we busy ourselves with prayer, it causes us to desire to pray more. When we spend time in prayer with our Heavenly Father who wants us to come before Him and ask, it causes us to want to do that more. And it's, it's, it's a circle. You pray, you desire to pray more, so you pray, so you desire to pray more, and it keeps going. And the reality is, it doesn't matter which point we jump on the circle. Even if we jump on the circle just because there's this command in this passage that we read this morning in church, it's going to lead to us being devoted to it. It's going to lead to us delighting in the command that He's given us. So we shouldn't get so wrapped up and what our motives are when we respond to what God's Word is in this place. 
The answer is simple. Pray. Be devoted to it. Be devoted to Christ in prayer and pursue it. And specifically, Paul says, we're to pray a certain way. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So there's two things here that should characterize the way we pray. We should be watchful and we should be thankful. And really the first thing leads to the second thing. Being watchful. And this here, this, this, this watchfulness that Paul tells us to have in prayer, I think, is probably the thing that contributes the most to us not praying as people. Because we do pray, but we don't pray this way. Watchfulness for them is it's being on alert. It's keeping your eyes open. It's like you're a soldier protecting a base or protecting a city and you're on watch. And so you have your eyes open ready for anything to happen. Because you know that if something does happen, it's your responsibility to let everyone else know what's going on. That's the idea here. Jesus, when he spoke to the disciples in Matthew 24 and 25 about the end, about that he was coming back, he told them, be on alert, for you do not know when the Son of Man will return. What he's telling them is to to be ready all the time. And Paul tells us that that's the kind of attitude, that's the way in which we should pray. We should pray with watchfulness. And I think that where we break down is we pray, we come to God just like we did a few minutes ago. And we ask God for very specific things. And then we go on about our day. We go on about our weeks. We go on about our life. And we forget that we ever even ask for that thing. That's the opposite of watchfulness. Watchfulness is asking God for something and then keeping our eyes peeled, waiting for Him to act. Looking everywhere to see what it is that He's going to do in answer to what we've asked Him. And because we don't do that, there's no reason for us to come back to Him in prayer. We just let it hang out there and forget about it. Being watchful in prayer will do two things for us. The first thing is, is a, a negative kind of watchfulness, a prohibitive. Being watchful in prayer will help us to be on guard against temptation. Paul tells us in Romans that we put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit in prayer. By being people who pray continually, steadfastly, are devoted to it, we can be prepared to respond to temptation when it arises because we're watchful for it in prayer. The other side is positive. It's when we pray for something and we wait for God to respond positively, to do something. Some of you were here uh, back in the spring when uh, Jerry and Sarah were going through their adoption with Ellie. And we prayed for them. It was posted on the city. People talked about it. And when the answer finally came, I mean, it was hugely encouraging to me. I know that from talking to some of you, it was hugely encouraging to you because something that looked like it was hopeless, God worked out for good. They got their little girl, even though it looked like they wouldn't. But if we would have just prayed and then forgot about it, 
God still would have acted. They would have known about it. But we would have just let it go. We wouldn't have been encouraged. Our faith wouldn't have been strengthened. We wouldn't have been pushed back to God in prayer because we watched for His response. And when we do that, it produces thanksgiving. When you ask God for something very specific and God answers in a very specific way and you recognize that He has answered your prayer in a very specific way, it causes thanksgiving. Usually even when He says no. Because you at least have an answer. And so this is an area that I think that we as a body need to grow a ton. We need to get into the habit with one another of sharing our needs, sharing our prayers with each other, praying them, and then collectively waiting and watching to see how God is going to respond. And there are a ton of ways we can do this. We can simply share it with fellow believers that we're in relationship with. I can call you and say, hey, I'm praying for this. Will you pray with me? You can call me and say, hey, I'm praying for this. Will you pray with me? We can do these things in community group together and then bring them up again. Someone write them down. Someone remember them and then watch as a group to see how God will respond. The city, which for those of you who don't know what the city is, it's this website that we use as a church to connect online. It's got a place specifically created for this thing. You can share right now a prayer request with everybody in the church. And they'll all be able to respond and encourage you and pray with you. The problem is you actually have to use the city in order for that to happen. There are hundreds, if not more, different ways we as a church can be more watchful prayers together something that we need to do because our prayers should be filled with it and thanksgiving. And thanksgiving isn't going to happen if we're not waiting for God to answer. Now, there might be some of you here this morning that think, you know, I I hear this command. I hear that I'm supposed to pray. I understand that I'm supposed to pray with watchfulness and thanksgiving, but whenever I come to God in prayer, I I just don't know what to pray for. I don't know what to say. Lucky for us, Paul gives us an example. He says, at the same time, when you pray, he's assuming, this is kind of surprising, but he gives them a command and then assumes that they're going to do it. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul asks them to pray for two things. First of all, he asked them to pray that God would open a door so that they can preach the gospel. They need God to give them opportunities to share Christ with other people. It's the first thing. The second thing is that it would be clear. Paul asks to be able to speak clearly whenever he shares the gospel. It tells us two things about Paul and about Paul's attitude towards sharing Christ with other people. The first thing is that all he needs is an opportunity. When we ask people to pray for us with regard to evangelism, we usually say something like, help me to have boldness. Help me to have discipline and obedience 
when an opportunity presents itself. Paul doesn't need that. He knows, he's compelled, he's commanded by Christ to share the good news with other people. So the only thing he needs is an open door for him to walk through. He knows that he's going to respond with obedience. And that should be our response too. We should ask God for opportunities, for ourselves, for one another. And then when those opportunities come along, we should respond with obedience. We should share Christ with other people. The second thing about it, that, that it's, it's clear. This should encourage us. Paul asked that he would have clear speech when he shares the good news. That's it. Paul only asks for that because he knows that everything else is the Lord's work. He knows that he can't persuade people to respond to the gospel. He knows that he can't convince people to respond to the gospel. He knows that he he can't save them. He can't transform them. He can't change them. That all has to be done by God. That has to be done by the transforming power of the gospel itself through the Holy Spirit working in people. Our responsibility is to speak clearly. That takes a load off. We don't have to know theology perfectly. We don't have to know the Greek language. We don't have to have you know, all the books of the New Testament memorized. We don't have to know apologetics and all these philosophical things and worldviews and all that. Sure, that stuff's helpful. We should study those things if we desire to. But Paul says... Make it clear. Accurately represent what the gospel is to someone else through speech. That's successful evangelism. We've done our jobs if we do that. Because that's where he steps in and works. And so we shouldn't heap all this pressure on ourselves and think that if we don't say things in the exact right way that we fail. God does everything after we clearly articulate the gospel. And I've heard a lot of people in this room clearly articulate the gospel. Could we work on it? Could we understand it more? Absolutely. But I would venture to guess that most of us who are followers of Christ have enough information about who Jesus is and what he's done for us that we can speak it clearly to someone else. And so we pray that we would be given opportunities. We pray that we would speak it clearly. And then we watch. We wait for those opportunities to come. And then we respond with obedience. We walk through those open doors. And then we are thankful. Because an opportunity has been given. And hopefully, God has answered our prayer to speak clearly. And then whether or not they believe it, whether or not they respond, whether or not you know, you're like Peter and you preach and 3,000 people respond and come to the faith, that isn't up to us. We don't control those variables. God does. And so we leave that up to Him and trust in Him. So the first part, we pray. Second part, Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. This does not mean that we literally 
take a stroll towards people that we don't think believe the gospel. doesn't mean just start walking up to people. If you want to do that, you can, but that's not what Paul's talking about. For the Jews, for the Hebrew people, walking was, it was life. It was how you lived, how you conducted yourself in the world. And so walking in wisdom simply means conduct yourself as you're called to by Christ in his word. That's what walking in wisdom looks like. But here, the focus isn't on that. It's not how we walk. It's not how we live. It's, it's the direction of our lives. Paul says we do this toward outsiders. This preposition here means that we orient our lives on something else, or we we point them to the direction of movement towards something else. For example, these speakers are pointed toward you. If I were to walk over here and turn them around, they would be lots a, a lot less effective at carrying sound to where you are. We point in this direction because the goal is for you to be able to hear clearly what's going on up here, what's coming through the speakers. Our lives should be pointed toward outsiders, toward people outside the church, toward people outside Christ. Our lives are oriented on them. We walk with a purpose toward these people. This means that if you don't know any outsiders, you're failing at this. As Christians, we should not only know and be in relationship with other Christians. If that's us, we're boring. And we're not good followers of Christ because He walked in wisdom towards others. Paul gives us the reason for this. We do this because we need to make the best use of the time. That's pretty clear. We're running out of time. We only have a limited number of days, weeks, months, and years on this earth. Jesus is making it all new. He's redeemed us. He's saved us. But we still die. Those we're supposed to be walking toward in wisdom, they only have a limited amount of time as well. Now, don't hear me saying, you know, like if you, know, you left this place and got hit by a truck, that kind of idea. It's not the, well, what if you died today? It's that every minute of every day we're running out of time. Yeah, we don't know how much time we have. But the point is that we should use our time well. We should use our time wisely. We should redeem it for his gospel, for his kingdom, because we don't know how much we're going to get. And every minute we have less of it. That's why we walk in wisdom towards outsiders. He tells us how we can do this. Let your speech always be gracious. Always let your speech be filled with grace. This is an absolute command without loophole. Always. Jen and I had this rule in our home when we get in disagreements that we can't ever say always or never. Because whenever we say those things, what we're saying isn't true. But here, it is. Always, 
all the time our speech should be gracious. That means any time our speech is not gracious, we aren't abiding by this command. Now clearly, we're not going to be perfect. We're going to fail. We're going to fall short. But that doesn't mean that we don't strive toward this end. And so the question for us is, is what do you think Paul has in mind when he says, let your speech, let your talk always be gracious? For him, how should grace characterize our speech? And I think for Paul and for us, hopefully, when we think of the word grace, the predominant thought that we have is of what Christ has done for us. It's the good news. And so the reality for us is that what he's telling us to do here is that whenever we speak, our speech should be saturated with the reality of what Christ has done for us. We should be gracious toward other people because we know how much he's been gracious towards us. That should affect how we talk. That should affect how we treat people. That should affect how we live toward one another. And then he says, season or let your speech be seasoned with salt. Every once in a while, as I go through a passage and study it more than I've done before, I become just shocked at the interpretation of a passage that I've been sold in my past and just completely believed and the reality that it's not really what anyone says. But I've heard my whole life that this passage means that we should be people that fill up what we say with Scripture. Right? Seasoning your speech with salt means that you quote passages when you talk to people. Maybe that's not you, but that's, that's how, kind of how I learned this verse. And I couldn't find anyone who said that that's what it means other than like, you know, my grandma. No scholars say that. The reality is, and this also doesn't mean that we should let our speech be like salty like a sailor. It's not that kind of salt. But it's close. It's closer to that than it is to the other. One of the predominant uses of salt in the ancient world and in our world is as a flavoring agent. If you get served something that doesn't taste good, one option that you have is to put salt on it to hopefully make it taste better. It adds flavor to things. And I don't know all of your food preferences, but most of the people I know would prefer to eat something that is flavorful than to eat something that's bland. I hate bland food. I want it to have flavor. That's one of the reasons why I love going to India because there is nothing bland there except for maybe the ground. And so the metaphor here in conversation is that the way we speak, the way we talk, the way we carry on dialogue with other people should be like a deliciously flavored dish. People should want to converse with us. They should enjoy conversing with us. We should not be bland conversationalists who the only thing we can say is, well, in Matthew 5, it says this. We should be interesting, compelling, engaging. When we speak with people, 
they should walk away saying, man, that was a great conversation. I want to talk to that person again. They shouldn't leave feeling like they just ate an overcooked pork chop. Here's this quote about this verse. This is of a scholar writing about this passage. He says, The picture is as far as we can imagine from that of the Christian who has no interest in affairs outside those of faith or church. And so, no small talk, no ability to maintain an interesting conversation. In contrast, it envisages opportunities for lively interchanges with non-Christians on topics and in a style which could be expected to find a positive resonance with the conversation partners. Now, first of all, you have to recognize that this guy's a scholar, so he's kind of doing what he's telling us not to do as he's writing. That's because he's writing, right? He's not speaking. If he's speaking, he'd probably be more interesting. It would not be conversation which has gone bad, but conversation which reflects the attractiveness of character displayed above all by Christ. Moreover, such advice envisages a group of Christians in a sufficiently positive relation with the surrounding community for such conversations to be natural. A group not fearful or threatened, but open to and in positive relationship with its neighbors. We should be people that in some ways are the life of the party in the community. Not boring, not disinterested, not having nothing to talk about other than, you know, Christian issues. But being able to talk to someone on the street about what's going on in the world, what's going on in their life, in a way that's interesting to them and shows interest in them. That's what it means to season our speech with salt. That's what it means for us to go out and be the salt of the earth. We're not bland. We're flavorful people. That people want to be with. It's not just so that people can look at us and say, hey, I'd like to hang out with that guy. It's so that through that relationship, we can share the truth of what Christ has done for us. Tells us why, again, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Normally, this verse has been used to talk about how we need to be ready to respond to any kind of objection that people can bring against the gospel. Sure, that's helpful. But the reality is that we should be in the community with people, knowing people, having relationships with people, so that when they ask us questions, we know how to answer them. We know how to speak to their life and their struggles and their question instead of just give them some like memorized response that's supposed to be an argument for how Christ is real. We're supposed to be able to speak to them and they're supposed to be able to speak to us. And again, for all of us this morning, we need to remember that even though these are commands, these are commands that are, that are couched in what Paul has already told the Colossians. They flow out of the fact that the old life has been taken from us and the new life has been placed on us. The imagery Paul uses in Colossians, it's as if someone comes and, and, and takes off our, uh, our shirt and gives us a new one. 
They do all the work for us. We just stand there like this. If you have kids, you know that's how you take off a shirt. Put your arms up and it comes off. That's what happens to us. And so these commands in this passage, they're not disconnected from that and we shouldn't disconnect them. They flow out of it. We keep these commands. We pray. We walk in wisdom towards outsiders because of what Christ has done for us. And so this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper, that's the goal for us. The goal is for us to corporately celebrate and remember what Christ has done for us. That our our past has been wiped away because of what he's done for us. That he's paid the penalty for our sins, that he's freed us from its power so that we can walk in this new life that he's called us to. And so this morning, wherever you're at on these commands, whether you're someone who prays all the time or someone that can't remember the last time they did, the answer for us is the same. We recognize that it's, it's not about what we do. We should respond in obedience. But more than that, we should trust in Christ and what He's already done for us. If you're new to BC and you haven't been here before, the way we celebrate the Lord's Supper is pretty simple. Everything's set out over there on that table. Uh, And then what I'll do is I'll pray in a couple minutes and then there's time for you to just prepare your hearts to take the Lord's Supper. And then whenever you're ready, you can come up, walk over there, take the Lord's Supper, then return to your seat. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to even come before you in prayer. We recognize that that connection was severed because of sin. And we thank you that you sent your son into the world to redeem us. To bring us to you. We thank you that the only way and the only reason we can come before you is because we are in Christ. So help us to be people who are devoted toward prayer. Help us to... Remember and recognize the the gift that we have in access to you through Christ. And help us trust and, and wait with thanksgiving on your response. Don't let us forget what we pray for. Don't let us pray in isolation. And help us to Be those who can walk wisely toward outsiders and insiders. Help our speech to be filled with graciousness. Help us to speak clearly and in a salty way. Jesus, we thank you that you allowed your body to be broken, your blood to be shed for us in our sin. Help us now uh, individually to prepare ourselves to celebrate your death and all it means for us. It's in your name we pray.